We are in a series on the gospel according to Mark. Today we are going to tell a story that is pretty familiar to us. Uh, The feeding of the 5,000 will be in Mark chapter 6. And as we do, one of the themes that I'm going to try to draw out of it as as I preach is this theme of satisfaction. Satisfaction in the land of scarcity. In many ways, we live in a world that's filled with at least a perceived scarcity. There's not many resources to go around, and there's a way that that reality changes the way we think, the way we feel, the way we behave, and all of that. Satisfaction. It's an interesting thing. I imagine that Norman Rockwell painting with the big, huge golden turkey, you know, freedom, freedom from want to be totally satiated, to be complete somehow, totally complete. I think that our world has no shortage of, of suggestions on what it is that will satisfy you. I think by the end of the day, we will probably all have been exposed to a couple hundred different messages, overt or subtle, and invite you to see satisfaction coming from this or that thing. Sometimes we find something that works, that actually does satisfy, and we tend to grip it. We tend to grab onto it and say, boy, this, this is the thing that works, and yet oftentimes it doesn't in the long run. When resources are limited, when fear is prominent, we often seek to protect. When the future is unknown, we seek to protect, to avoid pain, and to ensure our ongoing survival. I see what I'm talking about. In a world where things are dangerous and you have reason to fear and there's not much to go around, there's just a reaction that we have. We're only periodically satisfied, and when we find, we find that satisfaction in the world, it's so uh, alluring. There's something that we, we're afraid of it as much as we love it. And I want to flesh that out as we look at this story. In any attempt to find real satisfaction in this world, though, here's the, this is the really interesting thing. It always falls shy. We can actually trust Mick Jagger on this one. You, you can't find no satisfaction. You can try and try and try. And then he even, in a different song, says, but if you try sometimes, you just might find you'll get what you need which is kind of comforting, but it also is an acknowledgement that you can't find satisfaction. You might be able to scrounge together the bare essentials, okay? You get what you need. We kind of live in that spot. If satisfaction in this life is something that you desire, you won't find it in this world. That's not a Christian thought. That's not something that just comes from the Bible. That comes from our experience of life. <laughs> there isn't anybody who says, yeah, this, this is really totally satisfying. So I think we can say right off the bat, if I'm actually pursuing satisfaction, I'm going to have to step out of this world or I'm going to have to just resort to you know, maybe sometimes I'll get what I need, but I won't be able to find satisfaction. You have to step out of this world what am I talking about? Maybe Canada? Someone here might say that. I don't know if I would. 
We've always known this, though, and I suspect this is why many people were really interested in this man named Jesus in the first century, because he comes into the scene with some profound signs that he does, which people are pretty wowed by, okay? He's doing things that were very different than your average wandering teacher, But his preaching was odd as well. He was announcing the beginning, or the inbreaking, if you will, of a new world. There's something about living in this world, even, I mean, here we are 2,000 years later, we're still feeling the same drudgery. It, it, it cripples us, and it's harmful, and it's scarce, and it's weird. And, and for somebody to come in and say, there is a different world that's beginning, people's ears perked up. So he starts drawing these big crowds. He starts talking about this kingdom that the prophets had foretold long ago. I wonder if in some ways people had sort of given up. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, those old guys long, long ago talked about that, but it's just not happening and I've got children to feed and I've, you know, this is our reality. Can't get no satisfaction. It's a world ruled by a, by a wicked king, if you will, if I could speak metaphorically. Our world is governed in this way, which you hear all the time about the atrocities of the way we try to govern one another. It doesn't usually work out well. But this world Jesus is talking about is ruled by a benevolent king and a king of abundance. So you can see how people would kind of say, I want to go listen to what he has to say. I've been in this world long enough to know that I desire a different kind of world. And here's a man who's saying there's a different kind of world that is starting to form in front of our very eyes. We think sometimes in terms of God's kingdom as solely a place to go to. We're just kind of used to thinking that way. Jesus, however, describes it more fully. Jesus describes it more fully, and so God's people, he will talk to us about it and say, you're currently citizens in that future kingdom. We have a now and not yet reality. Now the kingdom is here, it's not fully here. So he invites us to say, you can live like a citizen in that other world right now in your job, right now in your school, on your soccer team, wherever you're at. You can live as a kingdom citizen even though you're an alien and a stranger in a foreign world. And so much of the Bible teaches us to see ourselves as not belonging to this world and hence trying to find satisfaction here would be a little bit odd. We can live in a way that is dependent upon God for provision and that brings that provision to other people, that provision of life. So if the world has characteristically always put people in the grave and has always sapped the life out of people and has always consistently produced a context in which you cannot find satisfaction, maybe if you're lucky for 80 years or so you can get the needs you have. It's very interesting to hear about a kingdom that is abundant and rich with endless provision and a benevolent king who is good. So, 
these things in mind, let's go to Mark chapter six, verse 30. I'm gonna read this story all the way through. And remember where we've come. Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. Jesus saying, this is here now. And people are really perking up. And he starts drawing crowds. And they're kind of wherever he's going. Verse 30. Then the apostles gathered around Jesus. And they told him everything that they had done and taught. Sorry, pause for a second. If you remember when... Uh, Ashwa preached a couple weeks ago. He talked about them being sent out. Jesus had sent them out to minister, to do his kind of work. Then last time I preached, it was on Herod and the beheading of John the Baptist at that party. We'll talk about that a little bit. So the context here is the disciples have now returned from where Jesus sent them out to do that work. And so they've, they've come and they're telling Jesus about everything that they had done So they were apparently doing things and about everything that they had taught. So they're doing things for people and they're teaching people things. Verse 31, and he said to them, come with me privately to an isolated place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going and there was no time to eat. It was a very busy time. So they went away by themselves in a boat to some remote place. But many saw them leaving and recognized them, and so they hurried on foot from all the towns, and they arrived there ahead of them. And Jesus came ashore, and he saw a large crowd. You've got to be wondering what he's feeling right there. Here's the crowd again. Oh, here it says what he's feeling. He had compassion on that large crowd who was breaking into his retreat time. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he taught them many things. When it was already late, his disciples came to him and they said, man, this is an isolated place and it's already very late. Send these people away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and the villages and then they can buy something for themselves to eat. But he answered them and he said, you give them something to eat. They said, what? Should we go and buy bread for 200 silver coins, 200 denarii, and then give, it, give them something to eat? Should we go spend this amount of money just to give them a meal? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Well, when they found out, they said, well, we have five, five loaves and two fish. And then he directed them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they reclined in groups of hundreds and fifties. He groups them all up. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up into heaven, he blessed or he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. And then he gave the loaves to his disciples in order to serve the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate, and they were satisfied. And they picked up the broken pieces and the fish that were left over, and there were 12 baskets full. And now there were 5,000 men who ate the bread. You think 10 to 15,000 people. This would be how they recorded a crowd in the ancient world and just counted the males, the adult males. This is a large crowd of people, isn't it? 
That's fascinating. Here's Jesus engaging with his disciples. They're looking at this major dilemma. He seems to be right with them. He engages his disciples to belong to his work. He provides everything that they need to do his work. It's very interesting. Well, there's a couple of things that I want to note in this passage. Mark is our, is our shortest of the four Gospels. And yet here, this telling of the feeding of the 5,000, you can find it in all four Gospels. And here Mark has it as the longest one. It's very, very important for Mark. Um, it's the only miracle story in the four Gospels that all four Gospel writers record. Every other miracle he does is only found in a few of them. But this is the one that all four Gospel writers said, we have to include this in our telling of the story of Jesus. That should cue us into the importance of this story. This is a window into that world, that other world, and it's a picture of the king of that world and how he's acting. The first thing I want to notice then is the way that Mark tells this story differently than the other four gospel writers. That's a great way, anytime you're reading a story in the Bible that's told by more than one person, pay very close attention to the differences that you read because you can get a good view for what this particular author is trying to drive at. So the first thing, I've already mentioned it, is that this is a feast story, isn't it? Well, it's juxtaposed right next to another feast story. But the contrast is stark, isn't it? The last story was about Herod Antipas thinking of himself as a king. He really, really wanted to be a king. He wasn't. He was a tetrarch, he was one of five rulers, but he really wanted to be a king. He thought that he should be called the king, and he really was just a jerk. He was self-indulgent, debaucherous, kind of crazy. He was a pleasure seeker. We saw that whole scenario where he's got a family member of his, a young gal, doing some pretty intense dancing, etc., and he is deciding afterwards to do a little bit of beheading. And so we have, we have a very odd and gruesome and grisly sort of party scene with the feasting of a worldly king and all that happens there juxtaposed next to this one. There's a big statement that Mark is trying, us, trying to have us see, a big idea. Herod sought satisfaction from the world, didn't he? And he never found it, and he lived in perpetual discontentedness. Nothing, nothing was satisfying. You've got to just pause for a second and just say, do I actually live in a state of perpetual discontentedness? Can I look back on my last week and see a heart primarily of thankfulness or am I primarily upset with the way things are with what I don't have, what I should yet acquire, whatever it would be. And if you answer that question and you say, man, I, I actually, I've been pretty discontent for a lot longer than a week, pay attention to what that says about where you're seeking satisfaction. It may very well suggest that you're trying to find satisfaction from things that very genuinely will never bring it, hence perpetual discontentedness like we saw in King Herod, or 
quote King Herod. But in this meal, we see the true shepherd king of Israel. And rather than taxing and exhorting and oppressing the people, he comes in and he, he leads them, he feeds them, he teaches them. You see a tremendous amount of care and concern for the people. You didn't see that in Herod. In this meal, we see him using some language, we'll come to in a second, where there's no doubt in my mind that Mark wants us to see Jesus as a new Moses. A new Moses kind of figure, and he wants us to hearken back to those times where Moses was caring for the people and leading them in a desolate place. Okay? I mentioned this is, Mark has a unique way of telling this, and it's particularly long. I want to say that I think Mark would look at this as a, as a real epiphany moment. We've been asking a question throughout this series on Mark, uh, which is, who do you think Jesus is? Jesus himself asked that question of his disciples, who do you say I am? And I've suggested to you that's the most important question for a human being, far more so than where do you think you're going when you die? That's part of this question. But the main question is, who do you think Jesus is? Who do you say he is? How do you answer that question? Well, the story helps us to answer that question. He tells it in a way uh, where we hear him use the words lonely and deserted or desolate place. It's around the Galilee region, and it's not, it's not a desert there. There's lots of crops that grow there, quite frankly. Today, there's big banana plantations, and there's lots of different fruits and vegetables that grow there. But it is rural. It is out in the countryside, if you will, and I think Mark takes some literary license to help us say, okay, I'm drawing their minds to a time when a leader led God's people into a deserted place. I think he's referencing Numbers 27 in this text when he says, like a sheep without a shepherd. Now, in Numbers 27, and feel free to turn there, I want to spend a second here. In Numbers 27, we have a brutally depressing moment in the story of Moses' leadership. After all of those years of leading God's people, they're coming right up on the cusp of entering into the promised land, and they're thirsty, and the people are whining incessantly. God tells Moses, I want you to display my glory before the people. Moses says, all right, I'm going to do that, and then he does something different. <laughs> He gets really frustrated, and he doesn't obey what God says. So it's right in this context uh, where God now has told him, you're not going to be entering the promised land, Moses. I don't know what that would have felt like for him. I doubt it felt good. But notice Moses' heart here. Okay? After he rebelled against God, and he didn't show God as holy before their eyes at the waters of Meribah, then Moses spoke to the Lord. This is Numbers 27, verse 15. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all humankind, appoint a man over the community who will go out before them and who will come in before them, who will lead them out and who will bring them in so that the community of the Lord may not be like sheep that have no shepherd. Moses is being displaced from his leadership role, and the first thing he says is, 
God, give them a great leader. Would you please give these men and women a solid leader who's going to lead them well? And I think when Mark writes in his gospel, he wants you and I to see in that feeding of the 5,000 moment, this is that guy. This is that leader. This is the one. Sure, there have been many other leaders in between now and then, and yet Mark wants us to see Jesus functioning similarly to Moses, but way better than Moses. Even the organizing of the people into groups of hundreds and fifties, that's in Exodus chapter 18, recalls our mind to that time when the people were in the wilderness and God, God had Moses organize them in Exodus 18, 21. But choose from the people capable men, God-fearing, men of truth, those who hate bribes, and put them as rulers over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. God seems to say, this is quite a disorganized crew. Let's organize them, and let's have different people in charge of leading them so we can do this well. Why? Why would you do that? Well, the passage continues on. And it's clear that shared leadership is the way that God's world works. It's clear that that's something that he's interested in. I think we see it in this feeding story. It's odd, isn't it? It cuts against the grain of, man, we're just here to support what only Moses can do. You see? It's, it's Moses appointing people to work with him in leading the people. How odd that an infinitely powerful God who can accomplish all things says, hey, come and work with me. Participate with me. We might think, is this a Tom Sawyer kind of episode? You know, Remember the whitewashing of the fence where he didn't really want to do the whitewashing, so he told all his buddies, hey, come and join me. It's super fun. And then he went and did something else. I don't think that's our God. If it was, it'd be weird. I wouldn't be standing here. It reminds me, quite frankly, of my own father trying to help me grow up. My dad invited me to come and participate with him as he did the things that needed to be done. In doing so, I learned how to change the oil in a car, build a room in a house, some electrician work, but don't ask me to do that unless you want to burn your house down. My dad helped me to learn things by inviting me to join him in the work that he was doing. I think that's more the case. And here in Exodus 18, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, says to him, choose people to be part of leading, and this will make your burden easier. And they will bear the burden with you. And if you do this thing that God commands, then you will be able to endure. That's good. You can make it. You can endure. And these people will be able to go home satisfied. That's interesting, isn't it? Then people will go home satisfied. Did you catch that? I get stuck in the structures and how it works well. Give the people real responsibility in their community and they will go home satisfied. Give them responsibility to bring satisfaction to the community and all will go home satisfied. I think our world says the exact opposite. It says responsibility equals pain. Or if I'm responsible for something, if I've committed to something, if I'm going to volunteer in something and I have to go do that, that's bad for me. What's best is an endless open slate to just do whatever I want in. I don't want to give of myself that way. That's what our world teaches us. 
Here there seems to be satisfaction in sharing in the mission of God. So we're looking at Mark's distinct ways of telling this familiar story. We sort of conclude, man, Mark is really opening a window here for us not just to see how Jesus operates, but even to see how human beings can operate with him. He's been sent by God to lead God's people, and he's like Moses, but he's better. We picked that up. And if you have a problem, I want to say this. Many of you in this room have a significant problem with the way that people abuse authority and power. I can look anywhere and prove that. We don't like it. If you say, I am sick and tired of the way that people are oppressed, kicked to the curb, they're isolated, manipulated, mistreated, and so forth. I'm tired of the way that people grab for power. I'm tired of all that stuff. Then take heart in this story because the Bible is showing you a picture of King Jesus and he is the exact opposite of all of that stuff. Pay attention to how he operates. You'll see something very different than King Herod, who is eerily familiar to us. Jesus is not a taker of life, is he? Not at all. He's always a giver of life. And here, I think, is the most profound glimpse into Jesus in this scene. He brings satisfaction to us in the land of scarcity so that we, too, would join him in bringing satisfaction to others, his kind of satisfaction. So, transition with me, if you will. I'm in Burlington, Wisconsin. I'm growing up. I have to do 40 hours of community service to graduate from high school. I know what you were all thinking right there for a second. I had to graduate from high school. That was part of my, uh, part of my requirements. And in Burlington, Wisconsin, we had the Nestle Chocolate Factory. So half the days a year, the whole town smelled like chocolate. That's part of my problem. And so... I figured out, being, I was really involved with the art. I took lots and lots of art classes. I love doing that. So they dubbed me as a guy who could help build the six foot by six foot tall, huge chocolate castle. We had a chocolate festival every year. So I got to, I got to go to the factory every day after school, and I built a six foot tall, six foot wide chocolate castle. It was fantastic. And as a, as a thank you, Nestle gave me this 10-pound crunch bar. Like, yeah, a candy bar that weighed 10 pounds. The thing was giant, okay? Oh, this was fantastic. I thought, this is beautiful. It's this big old crunch bar. Well, I'm a kid, more or less, and I did what people do often in a land of scarcity. I just received something valuable. And what did I want to do with that? I wanted to preserve it, protect it, and think about all the ways that this 10-pound crunch bar was going to benefit me. So I wrapped it up nice and tight, and I kept it in my closet in my downstairs basement. And every once in a while, I'd go over into Dad's shop and get a flathead screwdriver and knock a chunk off and enjoy a chunk of crunch bar. Well, I think that's a little bit selfish, quite frankly. It was all for me. It was my precious. My my precious, okay? And I preserved it, and you might be able to guess what happened. Over time, I, I, even I can't get through a 10-pound candy bar, so over time it actually dried out. It got nasty. Some white stuff started growing on it. 
It was weird, and I had to check it. I think this is the kind of thing in a cursed world where we receive valuable things and they're to be cherished and loved and owned and preserved for us. Often as young believers who for the first time realize they're truly loved by God, not slaves to sin, they're truly saved in Christ, we think of salvation as a gift for me. It helps me. It gives purpose to me. It strengthens my family for me. It's a personal relationship just for me. And I want to think and pray and study the word of God. I want to do all of these things so that my life would be better. It'll benefit my life, my healing, my wholeness, my hope. Jesus loves me, this I know. I stand alone on the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. Yes, that's the book for me. At first, I think there's something very excellent about that and beautiful. I do. But scarcity in our world has turned God's abundance into something just for me. Fear has turned confidence. It's turned fear into confidence for me. I can have a real trust in God. Death, oh death, where is your sting? Well, it doesn't sting me anymore, and that's fantastic. And then as a disciple of Christ, you find yourself out on a boat with Jesus after a very long day of working with him to introduce people to his kingdom and his salvation, and you are tired. It's a very long day after many, many long days like it, and the exhaustion is growing. And Jesus, who knows you well, can see that you're totally spent, and he too is utterly exhausted, as the whole team has been coming and going. And you haven't even had time to eat. You've been so busy. And he says to you, come with me privately. Let's go to an isolated place. That sounds good. Let's get out on the water for a bit and just chill. Find a nice beach and just kick it. But before you even get the boat docked, they're all standing there waiting to receive the boat in the dock. What do you feel in that moment? You feel frustration deep in your chest. These people are relentless. They simply won't let up. Moses felt that, didn't he? They're like the Israelites in the wilderness who frustrated the snot out of Moses, for goodness sake. Why can't they just figure it out for themselves? My energy is scarce. My patience is thin. I can't do this right now. And as you're thinking about it, and you're thinking about what this experience is going to cost you, you're thinking about your reserves. Do I have enough to do this? I don't. I'm exhausted. I can't do it. And then you hear Jesus mutter under his breath in the tone of loving concern, man, these people are like sheep without a shepherd. Something right there is different than your heart, isn't it? Jesus' heart is very different. You're bummed because your little retreat is shot now. There goes the afternoon on the beach, and Jesus says, come on, boys, let's get over here. Now you're sitting there, you're looking at the huge crowd, there's probably 10, 15,000 people, and you think, man, 
If only these people in Montevilla, these people here in East Portland, if only they could somehow know Jesus the way that I do. They're walking around like sheep without a shepherd. If only they could know Jesus the way I do. And you truly pity them, hoping that somehow, some way, someday, God will reveal himself to them the way that he has to you. And then the evening comes, and your stomach is grumbling, and the crowd is murmuring as well. Several moms and dads hit you up for some advice on where to eat. And that request is just too much for you. It's not that you don't like people. It's not that you don't care about their needs. But in this world, things are scarce. It's a place where you're kind of on your own, okay? We kind of all agree. You're on your own here. Yeah, if there was some kind of endless source of sustenance, I could probably help you out with your food problem. But this is the real world, dude. Things are scarce. You need to be responsible for yourself. Enough people badger you about the food, though, so you go to the one in charge. You say, Jesus, hey, come on. This is an isolated place, and it's getting late. Send these people away so they can go into the surrounding countryside and find some food for themselves. It makes sense. It fits well with the the way that things work in a land of scarcity. It's a reasonable request. But then Jesus, as he is prone to do, says something that is absolutely leveling. You hear it, and you're frozen, and you're speechless. You give them something to eat. I've seen Jesus tired before, for sure, but this is just crazy talk now, okay? Uh, Yeah, okay, should we go out and spend about nine months' worth of wages to provide one meal? Where are we going to scrape up that kind of cash? As nice as that is, don't you know that one denarii is about a day's full wage? 200 of these is a big bunch of money. No, Jesus says to you, which is pretty relieving. I guess he doesn't expect me to pay for it all. Still begs the question, though, where are we going to get this food? And Jesus says, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Well, you and your team pull out the food satchel. There are some barley loaves in it, probably. It'd be about seven or eight inches long, an inch tall. They're not very big. You've got two loaves, and you say, we've got five loaves, we've got two fish. And right then, you expect them to say, oh, dang, I thought we had a lot more than that. Yeah, you're right, send these people away. Goodness. (laughs) that, That makes sense, guys. But he doesn't say that. He says something very different. It's almost like he's from a world of endless provision, It's almost like he comes from a place where God's abundance is rich always. It sounds like the kind of place the prophets talked about in Isaiah and elsewhere. Instead, he takes this aimless crowd of organized wandering people and he organizes them. And he gets them situated to receive what he's going to provide for them. And you're like, oh man, organizing 50s, 100s. This reminds me of Exodus where I learned about that in the synagogue. You wonder if Moses looked like Jesus does now, taking a group of wandering people and organizing them into groups. And then Jesus does something even more strange. He takes the loaves, the fish, he looks into heaven, he gives thanks, and he breaks the loaves. And then he gives the loaves and the fish to you. And you're doing the calculation in your mind. How did the grain and the grinding and the flour, the bread, the baking, it's all just happening. 
You're literally part of a miraculous work that he's doing. And he's not making the bread appear in all the different groups. He's making the bread appear in his hands and handing it to the disciples and saying, now you go give this to the people. Now the disciples are in step with Jesus, bringing his provision to the world. This is a symbolic moment, and it's helping us, I think, understand how God works. He gave us, we disciples, all of that food, and he told us to serve it to the people. I'd be lying if I didn't tell you in that moment that I would think to myself, man, with all of this bread in a land where things are scarce, I'm going to stash a few loaves for later. But you don't. You just give it out freely and openly. And I think that was a crazy day for the disciples on the shore of Galilee. Right when they were starting to think that Jesus was all about teaching and preaching, 100% devoted to delivering a truthful message, they realized he's also interested in caring for the person at their physical need level. That this kingdom that he is going to rule and that we will live in is one where all of your needs are met all of them abundantly provided for. Jesus was giving endless life so that we could offer it to others. Then I know it was just bread, that was just an afternoon, but still, the symbol is there. It was a huge moment. This is what the kingdom will be like. This is what the king is gonna be like. Freely, abundantly, willingly giving and then inviting us to follow his lead and join him. That day, Jesus revealed a part of his character that sends our hearts and minds, I think, into a bit of a tailspin. Yes, we worship him as the sovereign Lord and protector and provider, but when we really pay attention to his word and, we, and we're doing that right now, we hear him saying, come after me, follow me, follow my ways. And in this person, Jesus, we see a God who creates order, out of aimlessness, who gives guidance to people who only have themselves, who gives satisfaction to the hungry. And then we see the crowds, and we see the disciples, and you might wonder this. Where do I sit in this story? Am I in the crowd like a sheep without a shepherd, just sort of moving through life? Is that the place that you're at? I think in this room now, We're all sitting in one of these spots. Or am I one of those disciples before the miraculous supper, baffled by the idea that we human beings are responsible for divine work in this world? How are we supposed to do any of this? Am I utterly unable or unwilling to believe that God truly does provide abundantly all that I actually need for endless well-being? Is that very difficult for me to grasp? You might be in that spot. Or the third place I can see is maybe I'm one of those disciples who out of allegiance to Jesus, which I think is a great way to understand faith, allegiance to Jesus, I've followed his lead and I've come to realize that this life source truly is endless and it has been woven into my very being so that I could give it to others for their well-being. I want to make a comment on each of those three spots, and then we'll close. If you're in that first spot, wandering, wondering, I urge you to spend time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
and meet Jesus there. Meet the king who is the shepherd and listen to how he talks and how he engages with people and get to know and feel his heart. And I'm fairly confident that some of that wandering aimlessness will dissipate. You will see truth in those gospels. I cannot urge you strongly enough to do that. If you're in the second spot, if you're in that place, and I think many of us are, where you know God wants us to do these things, but you say, I just don't see how that's possible. I don't know where we're going to get 200 denarii. That's crazy. You've got to ask some questions of yourself. Are you simply interested in cultivating relationships that clearly benefit you and none other? That's a good way to know if you're in that spot. People who I don't know yet and don't really have an apparent way for that they're going to better my life, I'm not really interested in. That's one of those places where we sit and we say, I don't think I'm supposed to engage with everybody that, that God sets in my path, just the ones that will benefit me. We don't want to be in that spot. If, if you're in that spot, you're going to be very interested in your personal relationship with Jesus and not very interested in loving or helping other people. And I think we see that on the front end with these disciples. And it takes them a while to learn this. Churches will become all about your own needs rather than the well-being of other people. You'll love the way that pastors and leaders can help your life. But when it comes time to help the pastors or the leaders or your other brothers and sisters, you'll be scarce. And if you're stuck in that spot, go back to this story this week. Really see what Jesus is inviting us to. To the men and women here at Central Bible who have been here for a long time, I really need you to own this story and, and to, to lead us as you see many new faces coming into the congregation to be able to open yourselves up to those new faces and say, I don't know if this is going to benefit me or if it'll be awkward or whatever, but God has placed these new faces here in this church and I am going to bring the love of Jesus to them. I can't do that all by myself, neither can a whole staff of, of leaders. We need to be that way as people. So I really want to encourage you at that level and know that Jesus is with you and he's providing for you everything that you need. And if, if you're in that third spot, if you're in that place where it's post-miracle, you're looking back, you're saying, man, God, you are providing constantly. If you've matured beyond that fear and that self-protectiveness, when the Bible instructs you to pass the faith on to others, you no longer say, but I can't. Just send them away to somebody else. That's not me. You're like that already. If you're in that spot when the Savior invites you to join him in ministering the gospel to this world, you no longer say, but there's no way. I'm not gifted. I'm not smart. I can't speak or communicate well. I don't have enough money or resource. You've moved beyond that to say, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. I want you to be encouraged as you embrace that courage and open yourself up to live with Jesus in his endless life of serving others, you will be participating in a divine mystery. This is beautiful. This moves it from obligatory into real life. Do you want to be alive with him? It's a kind of living that moves you well beyond anything in this world. And instead of being motivated by selfish ambition, Instead of being motivated by protectivism 
instead of being motivated by self, in humility, you will be moved to treat one another as more important than you. You will be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well, and you will have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had toward you. That's the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Pray with me. God, those words that you give to us from the Apostle Paul still ring true for us today. We do believe that you are with us. We believe that you are a good king and that you will provide for all that we need. That you will provide everything we need for endless well-being, even in the most desolate place. And we want to believe this so deeply. And we need your help here, Jesus. We want to believe it so deeply and so truly that we actually live in this way toward others. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust that you will give us everything we need to be the kinds of people that you have created us to be. And we want to say thank you, Jesus, for being so patient with us as we slowly learn these things, just like your disciples did way back then. Thank you for being patient with us and know that we do love you. And we're going to keep living for you as best as we can each day. Amen.